the middle of our uh, Operation Christmas Child collection. Uh, if you've already taken shoe boxes, they're due back by November 13th. And uh, you can place those out in our hub. If you go out these main doors through the glass hallway, just on the right before you get to um, offices and stuff, there is a place called we call the hub. And you can distribute your um, or bring your filled boxes there. Pick up empty boxes if you haven't had a chance to get one yet. I know last week we ran out, um, but there are more out there uh, today. And there's even, uh, we had a business in town that had an abundance of school supplies left over after back to school. And they donated those supplies to the church to be used and given to teachers and, and others in need. And so you can find some of those supplies there if you want to pack some of your shoe boxes uh, with some of those supplies. And so we love it when you participate in that. There's kind of a rich legacy at Lebanon Christian Church over the last several years of um, us being able to be a part of partnering with Samaritan's Ministries and distributing shoe boxes all over the world. And, and we're excited to do that again. So be sure to participate if you're able and willing. Um, I know that you will be blessed and you'll be a blessing to the world through that. Additionally, uh, we've shared over the last few weeks that we do have an annual meeting coming up. We have an annual congregational meeting. Uh, it's kind of required by the state of Indiana, uh, but it's an opportunity for us to cast some vision, to share a little bit about where we've been, but where we're going. Uh, also to kind of put a financial picture on that with a budget. And we'll be doing that on November 20th from 4 to 5 p.m. right here in this space. And it should last about an hour uh, and give us the chance to help you see the elders we're sharing, staff will be sharing. Uh, again, a little bit about where we've been, um, but even more where we're going. And as we look out to 2023 and beyond, um, we'll be excited to have you there for that. I want to pray. We're going to jump right in uh, to the word together. Father, thank you for the chance to be with your people. Um, God, just to be with people who are made and crafted in your image. We are all broken. Uh, we are broken by sin. Uh, we're all in need of your grace. Father, those of us that have found you and found your saving love are in the process of being made new. And I know there are others in this room who have yet to fully believe or accept who you are and what you've done and what that means for their lives. And they, like me, and others in this room experience brokenness, and God, you provide the healing and the wholeness. And so, God, may you just draw us into that wholeness this morning through your power, through your word. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in our hearts and lives, that you would be drawing to you those who don't yet know you and know your hope and peace, and God, be working in the lives of those of us who do. God, you know the times in which we live. You know how difficult and how hard they are. And yet, God, you are with us in the midst of this, and I know you want to do a work even now uh, in this season. And so, Lord, would you help us get out of the way and allow you to work uh, in a way that you want to? God, bring unity and harmony and peace and joy that only you can provide uh, to your people. And it's in your name we trust, in your name we hope, in the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, if last week um, you were to open up your smartphone and open up your weather app, uh, you would have seen uh, a warning on your screen. Uh, if you watch your weather on the news, you would have heard them talk about a, a warning, a severe alert. It wasn't a freeze warning, it wasn't a frost advisory, 
but there was a, an orange or red box that if you clicked the warning, it would tell you that we were under a red flag warning uh, last weekend. A red flag warning is when conditions are just right that uh, catastrophic fires can happen just with a simple, small ignition source, the, the butt of a cigarette, a match that isn't uh, cooled yet, uh, an ember from a fire or a burn barrel can just set, up a, set off a catastrophic fire, uh, quite literally a firestorm. And the reason why we're in a red flag warning is not only were there going to be strong winds, low humidity, warm temperatures, uh, seasonably warm temperatures, which are the conditions that are required for a red flag warning, but the red flag warning is issued because those conditions are accompanying uh, what we know is a time of like a decreased rainfall from what our norm is. You probably have heard stories, read stories, watched stories about how the Colorado River, the Mississippi River, Lake Mead, and others are at like almost historically low levels. All across the United States, there are places that are experiencing historical um, deficits when it comes to, to rain. Well, you combine drought or drought-like conditions with um, winds and warm temperatures and low humidity, and you have what we would call a tinderbox, where things can just be set ablaze in a moment. And as I look out at our society, as I look out at our nation, as I look out at our community, I feel like we kind of need a red flag warning that just kind of hovers over society right now. Um, we're experiencing a drought that has lasted years, uh, a drought of contentment, a drought of peace, a drought of true, genuine kindness and mutual respect and trust. And you combine that drought with this perfect weather conditions of maybe malaise left over from covid controversy and conflicting opinions surrounding competing worldviews and visions for a nation. Inflation at record highs for many of us for our lifetimes. Economic downturns. And we kind of now live in this tinderbox where it seems that one difference of opinion, one disagreement, uh, one disappointment, one discouraging word can, can just set off a firestorm, a firestorm of anger, a firestorm of division, a firestorm of, of violence, a firestorm of unrest. Uh, I don't know if you watch the news, but there are report after report of road rage incidents, and you, you study the statistics, and they're on the rise. I just saw a headline on the news the other day that, that in a road rage incident, um, someone tried to shoot an infant in a car seat. We're, we're, we're just setting at this place where conditions are optimal that just with one spark, so much comes unraveled. And I hear the stories and I feel the weight of the weariness myself. Which of us hasn't experienced someone wanting to cancel us or frustrated, complaining, grumbling? Which of us hasn't been a perpetrator of some of those very same things? And yet, what do we also know? We know that our hearts long for something more. Even as we, we see the drought of these things that we crave, even though we see the need and the desperation for true joy, true kindness, true contentment, true hope, true love, 
Even though we see the need, we, 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 it's, not, it's not happening. And so what's going to be the source? Where's the help going to come from? How are we going to change the circumstances? How are we going to change society? What's the agent of that change going to be? Where will all help come from? And nearly every graveside service I share in over the last few years, I, I share the words from Psalm 121. In Psalm 121, the psalmist is, is writing and asks the question. Uh, the psalmist writes and says, I look to the heavens, or depending on your version, it may say the mountains. I look to the heavens. I look to the mountains. Where does my help come from? And the psalmist answers the question. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That's where my help, my help comes from the one who made me. What I love about that psalm is if you, if you look at your Bibles, it'll have in italics typically something that says a psalm of ascent. The psalms of ascent are psalms that we know were recited by Jewish pilgrims as they made their way up to Jerusalem, who sat at a higher point for festivals and feasts and celebrations. And so they would recite these things as they made their way to Jerusalem, reminding themselves of God and his faithfulness and how he worked. In this particular psalm, we have some historical records that say that the Jewish pilgrims would recite it as they made their way through some of those dangerous paths leading up to Jerusalem. Jesus tells a story uh, of the Good Samaritan, and you might recall in that story, he mentions this popular piece of road that comes from Jerusalem down to Jericho, cliffs and rocky outcroppings, places for bandits and thieves and uh, people who mean you harm to be hanging out and plot their schemes. And Jesus says that sure enough, as a man was making his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, he was robbed and beaten and left for dead. Well, can you imagine climbing that very same road, knowing stories of similar acts, you feel the, the weight and the angst of worry and anxiety creeping in as you make your way to Jerusalem, and yet someone leads you in the words of Psalm 121. We lift our eyes, not to the rocks, not to what be lurking in the shadows, but we lift our eyes to the heavens. That's where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. When we look at a society that has stamped upon it, red flag warning, where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. How does he provide that help? He provides that help through his spirit and the renewing and transforming work the spirit of God does in those who call upon him. Jesus himself called the spirit the helper, the comforter, the advocate. And so as we journey through Acts, uh, a record of the early church, which the spirit features prominently in, like the main role player, where we're looking to the one who provides help, the one who provides comfort, the one who is the source of the inner transformation that we as desperately needed to, to create a world where true hope and true peace and true joy, true contentment, true gentleness and kindness prevail. The Spirit does that work. He is the helper. 
There's a lot of mystery that surrounds the Holy Spirit, depending upon your tradition and where you've come from and what you've heard about the church, uh, that there may be a lot of mystery. There may be some things that have leaned more towards uh, supernatural experiences, and there's a lot of mystery surrounding the, the Spirit. And so what we want to do, borrowing an image from what I shared last week, is that we want to make sure we provide an equal seat at the table when it comes to who God is. God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God, who's working all around us. We're gonna sing a song at the end here called Reign Above It All, God who reigns above it all, God who's been working for human history, a God who came to dwell among us and rescue us through his Son, and a God who is willing to live inside of us through his Spirit to shape us and transform us and really remake us. This week, we're going to focus on this transforming work of the Spirit in us and what the Word of God has to say to us. Next week, we're going to turn our attention to how the Spirit wants to work through us, Uh, but let's just focus on the work He wants to do in us. If you you turn to the book of Acts, what's interesting is that um, if you've not been with us on this journey, I'll share with you Luke, uh, this follower of Jesus who came to know Christ, we don't know through whose teaching, perhaps it was through Paul, perhaps it was through another Uh, records for us two volumes that tell us about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what that means for his people and how they live in response to what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. Uh, Those books of the Bible are Luke and Acts. They're a two-volume work that tell the story of Jesus and how Jesus changes everything. Well, Well, Luke in the book of Acts never once comes out and very specifically says in pointed language, the spirit is the one who transforms us on the inside and transforms our character to be like Jesus. Now, Paul mentions that multiple times in his letters, which we'll look at in, in a few moments, but Luke never says it that explicitly. However, the evidence is all around the book of Luke. I mean, the book of Acts. It's in the book of Luke as well, but it's in the book of Acts, like, like how, how, how the Spirit is transforming lives. We see it in the transformation that takes place in individual followers of Jesus' lives. Probably the most notorious or, or the most prominent of those individuals changed is the man that we call Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, who went by name Saul prior to meeting Jesus And we won't read the whole story, but I'll just share it with you and look at a few verses in Acts chapter 9. But we see the evidence of the Spirit's transforming work. As you read the book of Acts, um, we get to this incredible sermon by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, where he traces God as the God of all of history. And we said several weeks ago that all of history is his story. And Stephen recounts that, and God's working through human history And it infuriates the religious leaders who refuse to accept Jesus. And the crowds gather around Stephen to stone him. And the end of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8, it tells us that there was a man present there named Saul who stood by approving, running coat check for the tormentors. We get to Acts chapter 9, and we find that Saul is still, this is verse 1, Saul is still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. In fact, he goes to the high priest, and he requests a letter, a letter that would bring with it the authority of the high priest to, to go to Damascus and, and root out all those men and women, young and old, who are followers of the way, the way of Jesus, arrest them, and imprison them in Jerusalem. Like, like he is trying to violently eliminate this movement of of Jesus' followers. 
And yet, what do we see by the end of Acts chapter 9? A man who's meeting with disciples and sharing with them the message of Jesus, he goes from murderous threats to the message of the good news of Jesus. And what's the source of that change for him? Look at chapter 9, verses 17 through 18. When, when, when Paul or Saul is traveling to Damascus, he meets Jesus on the road. He's blinded. He's taken into the city. And then God appears in a vision to a man named Ananias, and he tells him to come to Saul and to speak to him and help him experience the good news of who Jesus is for himself. And Ananias arrives, and this is what happens. And Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. On into verse 19, which I don't think I have on the screen for you, it says he took some food, regained his strength, and then we see that the next several days, Saul spends in Damascus with the disciples. So we go from murderous threats to a proclaimer of the good news and, and what lies in between. A man who encounters Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit and is changed. And we could go to Acts chapter four and I could share with you the story of Peter and John. In Acts chapter two, we, we, we looked into this a few weeks ago. Um, the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles and the believers that are present as they're waiting on, on the Spirit Peter and John are among them. Acts chapter four, Peter and John are, are going up to the temple to pray as was their routine. They meet a man at the gate called Beautiful. The man wants money. He's begging and, and Peter and John say, hey guy, listen, silver and gold, we don't have, but what we do have, we're gonna give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up, take up your mat and walk. And the man is healed and he, he spreads it throughout the whole temple courts. Kind of some unrest ensues. People are, are being captivated by, by, by Peter and John. They're, they're preaching in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. The religious leaders come. Uh, they're getting arrested. And in, in Acts chapter four, verse eight, we have these words that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and he began proclaiming to the religious leaders who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So the Spirit's transforming even how he speaks and then this description occurs in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, where it tells us that the religious leaders saw that Peter and John were filled with courage and that they were these uneducated, ordinary men, and that astonished them because they took note that these men had been with Jesus. There's something that had transformed the character of Peter and John. There, there, there's, there's someone that had transformed the character of, of Peter and John. The Holy Spirit that filled them was shaping how they live, how they think, how they talk, how they act, their attitudes, their beliefs, shaping them to look a lot like Jesus. So, so they were being changed by his spirit. We, we could walk through Acts chapter six. There, there are a group of widows that are being neglected um, because they didn't have the same ancestry. And so the apostles say, hey, that's not good. They should be taken care of. Let's find some people who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Wisdom throughout scripture always applies to those who understand how God sees the world and choose to live accordingly. So here are people full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. They're full of the Holy Spirit and their lives have been shaped and changed to live as God would want them to live, to live as Jesus would live. 
So throughout the book of Acts, we see all the evidence that the Spirit is this transforming worker uh, working in the lives of his people. God in us, shaping us, renewing us, transforming us. Paul speaks about it more explicitly, more specifically in, in his letters. And we may say at first glance, well, Craig, we're in a series on Acts, so how do Paul's letters really fit in? But if you read the book of Acts, you see that they go together. They're held in tandem. Because what happens in the book of Acts? Paul travels. Starting around chapter 14, Paul takes these missionary journeys. His first missionary journey leaves a place called Antioch of Syria. He sets sail. He moves into places like Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. You look on a map, and what do you find? Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. That's a region called Galatia. And what did Paul write? A letter called Galatians. On another missionary journey, he finds himself on the eastern side of what we would know as Greece in a city called Thessalonica, and we have letters to the Thessalonians. You can read in the book of Acts, and you find that, that Paul spent a considerable amount of time in a place called Corinth, and we have two letters in our Bible to the Corinthians. On another journey, he meets a woman named Lydia in a place called Philippi. He, he helps a jailer in Philippi when he's in prison come to faith. And what do we have from Paul in his letters? A letter to the Philippians. He finds himself in a city called Colossae in the book of Acts. And what do we have? A letter to the Colossians. He meets a man named Timothy in the book of Acts who, who has these faithful, this faithful mother and faithful grandmother. And what do we have in our New Testament letters to Timothy? Oh, wait, there's a man named Titus there as well. We have a letter to Titus. So on first glance, we don't see these explicit words, and yet the journeys that are described in the book of Acts all have accompanying them these letters of correspondence from Paul that address real issues. And in all those letters, in some way, Paul points the people who are these new followers of Jesus, these people who are trusting and following Jesus, to the transforming work of the Spirit in them. And when we look at those letters, we see this powerful picture of how the Spirit is God's instrument of transforming the lives of those who trust and follow Him. That's why the Spirit has to have a seat at the table. He's, he's God's agent. He's, he's the one who does the work. There's an image I want you to, to carry with you for the rest of the message, and that's this idea of the Holy Spirit as the one who renovates our hearts and minds. The Holy Spirit is the contractor, the skilled laborer that God has given to us to renovate our hearts and minds, to shape our character, our attitudes, our beliefs, our choices, our understanding of the world, our understanding of hot topics in the world according to what he believes and what he has to say. The Holy Spirit does that work in us using his truth, but the Holy Spirit is that agent that does the renovation. And that shows up on page after page after page in Paul's letters. But I just want to grab a sampling because of time. Uh, one place it would be 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Again, a place that Paul visited and a place that if you look at not only the Bible, but historical records apart from Scripture, which we typically call extra-biblical resources, Corinth was... Uh, Kind of like a modern-day Las Vegas, full of all kinds of things that could distract you and probably grab a hold of your heart and take you away from what God wanted. And here is what Paul writes to them, 2 Corinthians 3. 
I want to read verses 16 through 18, but to kind of set it up in the preceding verses, if you read back, you see that he's helping the Corinthians see that as believers now, those who trust and follow Jesus now, they sit in a privileged position because they're able to see God in a way that's more full and more complete uh, than anyone in history had up until this moment. And he uses the story of Moses, how, how, how Moses couldn't even see God face to face. He was kept from seeing him. He was veiled from seeing the fullness of God. And really, the people of Israel didn't get to see the fullness of God because they were to be in his presence, they would die. Remember, there was something that separated them even in the tabernacle and even in the temple from that holy of holies. And yet, what does Paul write to the Corinthians about their experience? He says in verse 16, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces, we all who can now see, contemplate the Lord's glory. We contemplate the greatness of who God is. And we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. We're being made more and more like him. And where does this come from? It comes from the Lord, who is what? The Spirit. So the Spirit is God's agent of transformation, helping his people become more and more like Jesus. When we look to Jesus and we see his peace, his perfect peace, his wholeness, when we see his integrity, when we see his kindness and his gentleness and his passion, when we see his just heart and his righteousness, when we see the way that he truly loved, way beyond a feeling, but truly loved people with grace and truth, we, we see the type of person that the Spirit of God wants to shape us to become. And again, just echoing back to the beginning in this red flag warning over our world, like, what does our world desperately need? It needs what the Spirit of God desperately wants to shape in each of our lives. There's a word for this renovating work of the Spirit in Scripture. You may have heard it before. It's the word sanctify or sanctification. I'll explain that a little bit in a moment. It shows up in one place. There are several places, but one place is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. What I love about the letters to the Thessalonians, especially the, letter, the first letter, is that we read in Acts chapter 17, this time when um, Paul and Silas and his companions uh, travel to Thessalonica, they have this incredible response among Jewish people, among God-fearing people there, even among the Greeks who just are like, what? There's a man named Jesus? This is what he did for me? And they respond to him and they come to faith in him. And yet there are some in the city who raise kind of up this uproar that people are, they, they, they say that those who follow Jesus are supplanting Caesar as king and uh, they create this whole movement of unrest trying to arrest the people and, 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 and Paul and Silas have to leave town. But Paul so fell in love with the Thessala, Thessalonians in those short um, days there that scholars think that within weeks he wrote the letter of 1 Thessalonians just to write them and, and encourage them. And then later, 2 Thessalonians follows. And look at what he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits. You were some of the first to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. That word sanctify uh, means to make holy. You may recall, if you've done any reading in the Old Testament, that there's a refrain that's repeated by God again and again. He says to his people, be holy 
as I am holy. The word holy, it's a word that's really complex for us to to grab hold of because it has so many nuances, so so many um, dimensions to it. It has to do with absolute purity, absolute perfection, nothing wrong in it. But it's also this idea of being set apart and, and, and otherly, and, and that's who God is. And yet God gives us his spirit to sanctify us, to help make us holy. We're told elsewhere by Paul that the spirit is the deposit in us that seals us for God. Like, like in, in one sense, God looks at us because we have the Spirit in us, and he says, those are my children. Uh, they're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. They're gonna spend eternity with me. I'm gonna use them in this world today. But on the other hand, there's still this transformation that has to take place. And so his Spirit is sanctifying us. His Spirit is working in us, renovating us, renovating our desires and our passions and our understanding of the world to be more in conformity with Jesus. The picture to me of renovation is so powerful because when you renovate something, you take what was and you completely change it to be something else. If you were to invite me into your home and you said, hey, Craig, you got to see this. I am renovating my bathroom. I'm getting ready to start this project. And you walk me into your bathroom, which would be a little weird and creepy, I'll be honest. And, and I, I see your bathroom and you're like, hey, you, 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 you got to see the transformation. You invite me back six months later. Hey, the renovation's done. And I walk into your bathroom, still feeling a little on edge, still feeling a little cringy. And, and I see it's the exact same toilet with the exact same stains, with the exact same tile, with the exact same stains, with the exact same bathtub in that off color of avocado green, the same shower curtain, the same kind of water stains around the edges, the same old light fixtures with with old light bulbs in them, I'm gonna say, you did what? You renovated what? You didn't change anything. See, renovation on its own means that something is completely changed. And the very nature of the Spirit of God coming to live inside of us is, is not to leave us the same, but to change us to be like Jesus. But he's the source of that power. He's the source of that strength. And if I can go off on an aside for a moment, hopefully remember how to get back, one of the things that disturbs me sometimes in the church is that we expect people to be completely made new before we ever help them follow Jesus. Why don't you leave that lifestyle before you ever accept Jesus into your life? Why don't you give up every single addiction? Why don't you stop using all the foul language? Why don't you stop living in a different way and once you get all that done, sure, we'll let you accept Jesus. We'll, we'll baptize you. We'll let you be a part of our church. But who's the agent of change? It's not us. It's the Spirit of God. How can people leave the darkness behind unless they have the light? The Spirit does the renovating work in us. And we need the Spirit. The Spirit is who takes the old and brings the new. Any renovation means getting rid of the old. You tear out the, 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 the bad drywall. You, you get rid of the water damage. You, you get rid of the old paint. You, you get rid of the asbestos if you have that in your, in your place. You get rid of the, the old toilet. You get rid of the old appliances. You put in the new flooring. You paint the walls and the new fixtures. 
and you make it completely new. It's out with the old and in with the new. And this image is brought by Paul in letter after letter after letter. He talks about so often the flesh versus the spirit. And, and the flesh is that realm where we just give in to our carnal cravings, our sensual desires, what makes us happy, our selfish, our selfish wants and, and, and the things that we want to do in this world. And instead... We tear that out and we say, Spirit, build something new in me that's rooted around the realities of who God is and what he intended for us from the very beginning. And so in letter after letter, that shows up. Probably the most famous is Galatians chapter five, and I'm not gonna go there today because we're gonna preach on that in a few weeks, and I don't wanna steal from there. But in Galatians five is this picture of walking in the Spirit, crucifying, killing the flesh, so that God, through his spirit, can grow something different in us. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. But here's the beauty of God's word. It's consistent. It shows up elsewhere. You find it in places like Colossians, which is one of my favorites. In Colossians, he uses the images of clothing, but I don't think it's too far of a stretch to take it to renovation. And again, he talks about putting to death this flesh, this earthly nature. Here, here's what Paul writes in Colossians chapter three. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry after all. <laughs> because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. You hear all the, this is who you used to be. There's change, there's something new being created. But now you must also rid yourselves of such things as these, anger and rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Like, how different would America be if, if we just started with those things, right? If we allowed God to cultivate uh, lives where those things were diminished and absent. Don't lie to each other since you have been taken off your old stuff and its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. It's being made new. It's being renovated. It's being changed. It's being transformed. Transformed into what? Look at verses 12 through 14. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, we clothe ourselves. This is the change. These are the new cabinets. This is the new flooring. This is the new paint. This is the new fixtures, the new appliances, the new couch. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with each other. Forgiving one another. Forgiving others as God forgave us. And over all of these, putting, them on, putting on love, which binds them all together. That sounds a lot like Galatians. That sounds a lot like other places where Paul writes that there's this exchange that should take place in us as we start to follow Jesus. The spirit comes to live inside of us. He starts changing us, renovating us out with the old and in with the new. We can't get the new without his help. If you've ever tried to undertake a renovation job and uh, you aren't qualified or you hire someone that's not qualified, you know that you're kind of in for a disaster. I would bet in a room of this size that we have people, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands because it might be embarrassing, who have said, you know what? I can do this renovation myself. And then someone in your life said, uh, this is not going well. And you probably saw how much more costly it was. And maybe there's even some pretty significant damage that was done that had to be corrected. 
We can look out and we can see a world that's starving for goodness and kindness and gentleness and patience and hope. And, and we can try to build that in some other way. You can drive around our community and you can see signs that say, just be kind. We can try to help people know how to be patient. But our pictures, our end goals of kindness and gentleness and love will always fall short of what really satisfies apart from the help of God. It'll be something, it'll be more of a hack job. But we need someone who's qualified and the spirit of God is the only one qualified to come in and shape us to be the people that God wants us to be. And we only get that helper by responding to who God is in faith. Faith simply means believing in such a way that my life and my actions fall underneath it. And so when we have faith in who God is, that there is a God who made us, who loved us, who formed us in his image. There's a God who is heartbroken over the sin in humankind that separated him from his beloved creation that there was a God who loved that world so much that he would actually send his son, he would invade human flesh himself to walk among us, to be exposed to the things that we're exposed to, to be tempted in the ways that we're tempted, and not only to overcome, to give us that hope, but to actually pay the penalty for the sin that stands between us and God. And that faith says, this is who God is, this is what he's done, and because of that, I'm going to align my life around him. That faith drives us to confess him. He is my king. He is my Lord. He is my guide. That faith guides me to turn from living for myself. Okay, it's not about what I want. It's not about what I like. It's not about what makes me feel good. But instead, I do the about faith. But God, what do you want? I may not understand it. I may not agree with it. But this is what you say is best. And when we do that, we die to ourselves. And the faith drives us into baptism, this beautiful picture of the burial into Jesus' life and a resurrection. And what's the promise we receive? Peter promises, Acts chapter 2, 38 and 39, we'll receive the gift of his spirit. God's spirit will come to dwell in us. The help that our world needs is not found in anyone. It's not found in who you'll cast a ballot for on Tuesday. It's not found in anything you can buy or any place you can go or any condo you can purchase. It is found in knowing the God who made you and allowing his spirit to come inside of you and renovate your heart and your mind. And if you would like to know more about that, we'd love to have that conversation with you. Scan the QR code, let's connect. Fill out the connection card at one of our communion stations. Email us, connect at lebanonchristian.org. Start a conversation with me here at the front of the room at the conclusion of our worship experience. But let's help you get the renovator in your life to start his incredible work. If you've already received the spirit to work in you, something we also know about renovation projects is that incomplete renovation projects are sometimes just as dangerous as unqualified renovation projects. You leave a project partly done, nails sticking up and holes in the floor and wiring exposed, pieces of sharp metal that have not yet been turned in or covered over, unfinished wood with splinters, and you can do just about as much damage as you can if you have an unqualified builder working in your home. There's a phrase that occurs in Paul's letters. In one place, he talks about quenching the Holy Spirit. In another part, he talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. 
It falls in this whole line of reasoning that, that Paul gives about how we live as followers of Jesus in our world and how, how we can grieve the Spirit and we can actually grow so, so dull or so deaf to what God wants to do that we ignore him. And even in the lives of those who would say they're followers of Jesus, the same things can exist in our lives there can still be rage and bitterness and malice and sexual immorality and jealousy and greed. And the list goes on and on. And Paul even addresses those in Ephesians 4 as it continues. One of the things that's plagued the church in America over the last several years because of our abundance and our plenty, even because of how we propagated the gospel as simply a transaction and a sales pitch is that we have many people who have come to follow Jesus, who the Spirit invaded and started the renovation project, and they've quickly turned back to the things of this world and he's not allowed that work, they've not allowed that work to continue. And so sometimes when people see the church in America, they still see a lot of bitter, angry, hurtful, obscene people. And we grieve the spirit and we grow deaf to his cries. And yet God wants to continue that work in us. How do we in our red flag world position ourselves for the spirit to continue to work? I mean, if you watch construction prices over the last few years, they're getting more and more expensive. It's going to cost you to allow the Spirit to build the life of Jesus in you and through you. But the only way we become the people that he wants us to be, the only way we become the salt and the light in this world that he wants us to be is by paying that price, by surrendering him, by saying, God, have your way in me. Reshape my attitudes, reshape my desires, reshape my understandings of the world, renovate my heart and my mind. Make me that gentle person, that peaceful person, that honest person, that person of integrity, that person who is resilient, that person who is faithful, that person who is good, that person who is loving in all the best sense of that word, not all the earthly definitions of it. And what we've seen in the church in America is that so many times we just treat following Jesus like some other option on the table when it's convenient. We don't position ourselves to be shaped and changed. The Spirit of God is fed and nourished and equipped uh, through some very simple things. Things we learn in the life of Jesus. We're told in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus was filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. And what do we see in Jesus' life? He was committed to the Word of God. If you want to hear the Spirit's voice, you want the Spirit to do the, the transformation in you, it's going to come because we're in His Word. And we're in such a privileged place. Every single person in this room can open up a web browser right now in this moment, go to a place like Bible Gateway or Version, and have a Bible at their fingertips. Every single person with a smart device in this room can download a free Bible app. Every single person in this room can go to, to Walmart and buy a Bible. You can pick one up on the bookshelf at the back of the room. Like we have an abundance of the word of God and yet what happens time and time again in the church, how many of us actually read it? The words that reveal to us the heart of God. We believe the lie of the enemy. 
the lie of the enemy, that you have to have some large book on your shelf or some in-depth study to understand God's heart for you. I'm not saying study is bad. I'm not saying study is unimportant. But every single person in this room can pick up the word of God and read it and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you and God will lead you into his truth and he will guide your life. How do I know this? Travel around the world where they don't have the books that we have. Travel throughout the, 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 the countries in Asia where it's illegal to be a Christian and gather with the church in catacombs and in basements as they simply read the word of God and he guides them and he shapes them and he changes them. Will we be people who simply pray? Will we be people who pray, God, teach me through your word? Will we be people who, who open up his word on a regular basis and read? And then read again and then ask simple questions like, God, what does this passage teach me about you? God, what does this teach me about humankind? God, is there a commandment to be obeyed? God, what do you want me to do as a result of this? And spend time answering those questions. And then doing what you feel God is leading you to do, his spirit is leading you to do. And then ask another question, God, who do you want me to share this with? And then go share it with them. And as we position ourselves at the feet of his word, hearing his voice, the spirit takes hold of that and he reveals in us those areas, those attitudes, those beliefs, those, those places that aren't yet surrendered to him. And he helps renovate our hearts and our minds. But it's not just disciplines of prayer and disciplines of the word. It's what happens when we surrender to him and say, God, what I have is yours. And he then helps us become generous people and we steward his resources in a way that build up his kingdom and, and keep the, the, the wants of this world from having a hold on our hearts. What happens when we give up our time to him and we serve? We serve in our community and we serve in our church and we serve people that live near us. That humility, God shapes our hearts to have hearts of service like his. The spiritual disciplines we see in the life of Jesus allow the work of God to even happen in his life, and they'll do the same in us. What happens if in the church in America, we realize that worshiping with him and his people must be a priority for us as it has been for his people throughout history? Some of the most recent statistics suggest that for someone in Christian who can, someone in America who, who considers themselves a Christian, who says that they are faithful and mature, that they attend church every four to six weeks, one time to worship with people. And yet, what do we know historically, past, present, that when people gather together? The Spirit of God does things that we cannot begin to imagine and he works in our hearts and he teaches us through his word and he aligns our values and our thoughts with him as we sing praises to him. And yet people in America who say that they're faithful followers of Jesus will only worship with his people once every four to six weeks. And this is what breaks my heart is that somehow we've come to this place and honestly, this keeps me up at night and I'm like, what is it about how we're presenting Jesus that even leaves this idea on the table that I can just get a little bit of him once every four to six weeks and I can put him alongside my trips to the orchard and my kids' recreation schedule and my other desires to go here or to go there? I'm not saying any of those things individually are necessarily wrong, but when they take a four to one or six to one ratio over meeting with his people. What does that say about how we put ourselves in a place where God can shape us and change us and renew us and renovate us? 
uh, question that's being asked all across the United States of America right now is like, not just where are all the people when it comes to the workforce, but where are all the people when it comes to the church? I did a report through our database that, that, that keeps track of, you know, those who check in for children and things like that, primarily those who have children in our programs. And from May 1st to October 23rd, we had 852 unique people that checked in to have a child in one of our programs where they themselves checked in. And you know how many of you don't check in. That means there's close to 1,000, 1,100, maybe as many as 12 or 1,300 people that have worshiped at Lebanon Christian Church on a Sunday morning with us over the last six months. And yet how many come on a regular basis? Somewhere between 350 and 450. It just goes up and down like this. And you know where you fit into that. And the goal of this is not for you to say, well, he's really, really been really hard on me. No, the, the, I'm just asking the question if the spirit is the agent of transformation.